Amen. All right, well, we're there in Joel chapter number two. And of course, on Sunday nights, we've been going through a verse-by-verse study through the book of Joel. And if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we started in Joel chapter number one. And we spent the first week, first sermon in Joel chapter one, focused in on the end times prophecy of Joel chapter one. And then we spent the second week focused in on the practical application. Tonight, we're going to begin Joel chapter number two, and we're going to spend at least two, maybe even three weeks in Joel chapter two. And uh, tonight, we're going to see, or we're going to continue to see, a symbolic timeline of uh, the end times prophecy. Now, there, there's a lot for me to kind of go over tonight, so I hope, I hope you're just ready to take notes, move in your Bible. You've got to kind of put your thinking cap on, because uh, I'm going to have to move quickly. I've got a lot to cover. But let me begin with just kind of the most interesting and the most potentially difficult uh, or controversial part of Joel chapter 2. I want to begin by showing you that when we begin in Joel chapter 2, in verse 1, we begin with a description of an army. In the first nine verses, we see this army uh, being described that is overtaking the city of Jerusalem. Joel chapter 2, look at verse 1. The Bible says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. Notice the description here. A great people and a strong, there hath not ever been the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of mine generations. Verse 3, A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. And this is just an an illustration of the amount of desolation that they are leaving behind them. They they say, say it's like if you were to see them moving into the city, it would be like the Garden of Edens before them and a desolate wilderness behind them. They're just ravaging and destroying everything. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. Look at verse 4. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains, shall they leap like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array. Before their faces the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men, and they shall climb the wall like men of war, and they shall march every one on his way, and they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust one another. They shall walk every one in his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the walls. They shall climb up upon the houses, and they shall enter in at the windows like a thief. So I want you to notice here in the first nine verses, we have this description of this army. I'd also like you to notice that this army is described right before uh, what we refer to or what the the Bible calls the day of the Lord. Because if you notice in Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 9, you have this army described. Then in verse 10, the Bible says this, The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. Now, right, if you've been with us on Sunday nights and you've been studying this with us, you should already know, when the sun and the moon go dark, this is the day of the Lord. Notice verse 11, And the Lord shall utter His voice before His army, for His camp is very great, for He is strong that executed His word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? So in verses 1 through 9, we have this description of this military overtaking, this army overtaking the city. And then in verses 10 and 11, we have, of course, described what we know as the day of the Lord. Now, you might ask, why is this description of this army so important? And the reason for it is because in Joel chapter 2, we see this description of an army destroying Jerusalem. And this army can, if you, for people who study end times prophecy and study these types of things, it can become a point of confusion and controversy. And here's why, and I want to explain it to you. Some pre-tribbers, and we are not pre-tribbers, we do not believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, but some pre-tribbers will take Joel chapter 2 and then they will claim in verses 1 through 9 that what we're reading about is the battle of Armageddon. And they'll say this is the battle of Armageddon. And it's very important for them to prove that this is the battle of Armageddon, to have nobody argue with them that it's the battle of Armageddon, because they use this as a proof against our position, the post-trib, pre-wrath rapture. They'll say, this is the battle of Armageddon. You say, why does it matter? Well, here's why. Because if, if this is the battle of Armageddon, 
then their argument is, notice that it is connected to the day of the Lord. Because you have verses 1 through 9, you've got the battle described. Then verse 10 and 11, you have the day of the Lord. And that would move it on the timeline. And when we're talking about the timeline of end times prophecy, what we're talking about is what the Bible refers to, what we refer to as Daniel's 70th week. The week of years that has these uh, events unfolding. Now, we believe that the abomination of desolation happens exactly where the Bible says it happens, in the midst of the week. We believe that the first three and a half years are the tribulation period. The other uh, section of it is the wrath of God. And in the midst of the week, you have the day of the Lord, and that's when the rapture happens. Now, they like to call us mid-trib. That's because they don't understand uh, what the tribulation is, and they think the whole week is the tribulation period. But what we are is midweek. We believe in the midst of the week is the day of the Lord and the rapture. They would argue, no, the day of the Lord happens with the battle of Armageddon, which very clearly the book of Revelation teaches us is at the end of the week. So they like to make this point and they like to have this argument because it's their proof saying, this, the day of the Lord, if the day of the Lord is the day, of, is, is, is the day that you get raptured, which is what we believe, Matthew 24, uh, Mark 13, Luke 21, and, and, and the, the day of the Lord is connected to the battle of Armageddon, according to Joel chapter 2, then you guys are wrong. This is their argument. They will argue that if this is the battle of Armageddon, then the day of the Lord is connected to Armageddon towards the end of Daniel's 70th week and not in the midst of Daniel's 70th week. And therefore, there cannot be a post-trip pre-wrath rapture or they, uh, and, and they use this as a proof against us. Now, keep your place there in Joel chapter 2. That's going to be our text for tonight. But go with me if you went to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19. Let me just start off by saying this, and, 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 and I'll, I'll tell you right up front. The introduction to the sermon tonight is going to be very long. I, I just kind of have a lot of things I've got to cover tonight. I'm going to cover a lot of different aspects of end times prophecy and end times timeline. It may seem like we're kind of covering things that have nothing to do with each other, but if you can focus and pay attention, we're going to lay this foundation, and then we're going to tie it all together, and uh, it should make sense. Hopefully, it makes sense to you uh, tonight. Let me begin by saying this. Why, why I don't believe that the army described in Joel chapter 2 is referring to the battle of Armageddon, a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, actually, I had you keep your, go to Revelation 19, and, and I did want you to do that. But actually, just go back to Joel real quickly. Keep your finger right there in, in, in Genesis 19. We're going to go right back to it. But, but go back to Joel chapter number 3. You know, I don't believe that the, the army described in, in Joel chapter number 2 is the, is the battle of Armageddon for a couple of reasons. First of all, the battle of Armageddon is covered in the book of Joel. It's in Joel chapter number 3. Notice verses 1 and 2. For behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations. This is the battle of Armageddon. And will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. So, first of all, the battle of Armageddon, when God gathers all the nations into this valley, is covered in the book of Joel, in Joel chapter number 3. But secondly, what you find described in Joel chapter 2, if you were uh, looking as we were reading, if you were paying attention, you have this military. It says that it's a strong people set in battle array. It says that they run like mighty men. They shall climb the walls like men of war. It says that they uh, shall run to and fro into, in the city. They shall run upon the walls. They shall climb upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows. And if you've ever seen any sort of military training, you know this is the kind of things that military is uh, uh, trained for. If you see people running and jumping through walls and, and going through obstacles and things, and that's what's being described here. The thing about the Battle of Armageddon is that we're not going to be do doing any of that. The battle of Armageddon, we will be with Christ, but here's the thing, I hate to break it to you, we're just along for the ride, Jesus is doing all the fighting. Amen. Revelation 19, look at verse number 11, notice what the Bible says, Revelation 19, 11, and I saw heaven, this is, this is the battle of Armageddon by the way, nobody 
disagrees with that Revelation 19 is the battle of Armageddon. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and his head were uh, many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Of course, we know that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, And the armies, this is us, which were in heaven, Followed him upon white horses. Notice, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. You're not going to be rolling around, climbing through windows, jumping over walls or anything like that. We're following him in, in clothed in fine linen, white and clean. How does this battle end? Verse 15. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Look, when the battle of again happens, there's going to be one hero. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be cheering him on. White and clean, linen clothes, uh, fine linen, white and clean. So, you know, why don't I believe that, James, uh, that Joel chapter 2 is the battle of Armageddon? A couple of reasons. First of all, because the battle of Armageddon is mentioned in Joel chapter 3. Secondly, because we're not going to actually participate or fight like an actual military climbing through windows during the battle of Armageddon. Thirdly, because as I already pointed out to you, this battle happens shortly before the day of the Lord. If you look at verses 1 through 9, you have the battle that's described, the overtaking of the city. And then in verse 10 and 11, you see the battle of Armageddon. This battle happens, excuse me, in verses 10 and 11, you see the day of the Lord, the sun and moon turn into darkness. This battle happens before the day of the Lord. So I don't believe that this is a description of the battle of Armageddon. And I think that they're really grasping at straws trying to turn this into the battle of Armageddon so they could have some sort of proof against the post-trib rapture. With all that said, let me say this. We have to answer this question. What is this army? What is being described here? And I'd like to explain to you what this army is and how it fits into the timeline of end times prophecy and how it actually proves the post-trib pre-wrath rapture. It strengthens the post-trib pre-wrath rapture. It doesn't disprove it or contradict it at all. Go back uh, to uh, the book of Joel, if you would, Joel chapter number two. And again, let me just say this, and I, I've already announced this, and I'll say this now, and I'll probably say it again at some point in this sermon. When I train new preachers and young preachers, I warn them about what I like to call information overload. I like to teach them like uh, Pastor Jack House taught in his book, Teaching on Preaching, that we should really focus on one, uh, uh, one great truth per sermon. And, and of course, you can have one truth with multiple points and multiple applications, but you don't want to be all over the place. You don't want to overload people with information. And I just want to confess to you tonight that this sermon is going to be a little bit of information overload. I realize that I'm breaking my own rule. I get that. But there's no real other way to deal with it. I kind of have to give you all this information. We have to go through all this information in order for uh, you to be able to understand. With that said, let me say this. Some of you are studied up on end times prophecy, and you'll be able to track with me, and it'll all make sense to you. Some of you, maybe not as much. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Write down. Take down some notes. Learn what you can, and study the rest. You know, you'll have time before uh, the day of the Lord comes for you to be able to study these things out, all right? Um, but with that, let me just kind of explain a few things, and I have to just kind of lay some foundations, all right? So let me begin by giving you a quick outline of end times prophecy. And if you're curious on end times prophecy, and you're maybe in the camp that, you know, you're not really clear on it or how it happens, and here's the thing. When it comes to end times, you can study it out, and, and, and if you don't really look at it or think about it for a year, have forgotten a lot of it. So you may be like, yeah, I'm a little vague on it right now, and it's just because, you know, it's not something that we're constantly looking at, and it is one of the more deeper subjects in the Word of God. So let me just help you out and give you a quick outline for the events of the end times prophecy. And of course, it's going to be very quick and very uh, just kind of an overview. But I want you to have this overview because what we're going to see in the book of Joel, Joel chapter 1 and 2, is that we have a symbolic outline 
of end times event that the prophet Joel gives us. But you need to kind of understand the outline of end times prophecy to be able to see the symbolic outline that he gives us. All right, so let me just give you some thoughts in regards to end times prophecy. It all begins with what we call the tribulation. Now, the tribulation is outlined in the book of Revelation by seals. You've got six seals in the book of Revelation, and the first five seals have to do with the tribulation, what we call the tribulation period. Now, the tribulation period itself is divided into two sections. The first section, it was often referred to as the four horsemen, or it's the first four seals of the six seals mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's called the first four, the four horsemen because when you read about the first four seals, when those seals are open, John tells us that he saw a horse, you know, a man with a white horse or a red horse or a pale horse or a black horse. So we have the first section of the tribulation, which is actually what's called the tribulation period, uh, is the first, is what we refer to as the four horsemen. This is when we first see the Antichrist. He comes on the scene. Nobody knows he's the Antichrist at this point, but he comes on the scene. We see pestilence. We see war. We see famine. This is, these first four seals, is when the world is brought into what we would call the new world order or a one world government. This world war that's going to take place during the tribulation period, plus the famines, plus the pestilence, plus the fact that a political leader shows up on the scene. John say, says that he saw him, you know, riding on a white horse, and he had a bow, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. This is when the new world order gets established. This is when the one world government gets established during the first four seals of the tribulation period. Then you have the fifth seal. The fifth seal is what we would refer to as great tribulation. When the fifth seal is open, you have the abomination of desolation set up. Now, here's why this is important. The abomination, and I don't have time to go, you know, these, everything I'm explaining right now, we can do entire sermons on any one of these subjects. So you're just going to have to uh, remember this from previous sermons or, or study it out later if you don't trust me. The abomination of desolation is an image that is set up. The reason that this image is important is because when the fifth seal opens and the abomination of desolation is set up, this is when the mark of the beast is rolled out. This is when you must worship the beast and his image to receive the mark. If you don't receive the mark, you cannot buy or sell. This is when great persecution happens upon believers. Many Christians are killed. This all happens at the fifth seal. Here's what you need to understand. The first four seals forms the one world government. The fifth seal forms the one world religion. Because the Antichrist, before the abomination of desolation, he is a, the world leader politically. But when he sets the fifth seals open and he sets up the abomination of desolation, he declares himself God. And now the whole world is not only united under a one world government, it's united under a one world religion. The fifth seal. This is all what we would call the tribulation period, the first four seals. The four horsemen are the tribulation. The fifth seal is the great tribulation. This is when Christians are persecuted for not taking and killed for not taking the mark of the beast. Then you have the sixth seal of Revelation, and this is the rapture. This happens after the tribulation, like Matthew 24 says. And this happens in two, you could kind of divide it into two sections. The first section is what we've been talking a lot about on Sunday night, the day of the Lord. When the sixth seal is open, the sun and moon are darkened, and we have the day of the Lord. And then the rapture happens, or the gathering of believers. Because the Bible says that God will not pour out His wrath upon His people. So up to this point, the wrath of God has not been poured out. The tribulation period is not the wrath of God. He, the, the sixth seal is open, the sun and moon are darkened, his people are gathered out, the elect are gathered out, then begins the wrath of God. If you're reading the book of Revelation, this is outlined by seven trumpets or seven vials. The seven trumpets and the seven vials are pretty much happening simultaneously. They're describing the same events from different views. It's all just the wrath of God. After that, you have the battle of Armageddon towards the end of Daniel's 70th week. 
which is also known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And again, I don't have time to go into all that detail, but the marriage supper of the Lamb and the battle of Armageddon are referring to the same time frame, the same event. I also believe this is when or shortly after this, and this is more of my opinion, um, but it's when the judgment seat of Christ happens. Then after that, you have the millennial reign of Christ, where we rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. At the end of the millennial reign, we have the battle of Gog and Magog. Now, if you listen to, to end times prophecy stuff on the radio or whatever, they're going to tell you Russia's Gog and North Korea's Magog, and they're coming from... The, none of that's true. All, Gog and Magog happens at the end of the millennial reign, Amen. a thousand years after the Lord Jesus Christ. They're just lying to you. They don't, they're not saved. They don't understand the Bible, and they're trying to make a penny. The battle of Gog and Magog happens at the end of the millennial reign, along with the great white throne, and then we go into the eternal state. All right? Got it? That's the outline. Hopefully you're able to write that down, or you know that, and you understand that. You say, why didn't you go over that, and why did you explain that? Here's why. The book of Joel covers the end times timeline. If you remember, if you were with us three weeks ago, when we began the book of Joel, on Sunday night, the first sermon that I preached out of Joel chapter 1, I showed you how Joel chapter 1 is a description of the four horsemen or the first part of the tribulation period. Do you remember we saw the locusts? We saw the pestilence? We saw the, the wars? We saw the famine? Joel chapter 1 is symbolic of that first part of the tribulation period, which we would call the four horsemen or uh, the four seals, and that's what we covered in the very first sermon in the series, and I would encourage you to check that out if, if you don't remember that. Then, so we have Joel chapter 1. We have the four horsemen, right? Remember, there are six seals. Joel chapter 1, we have the four horsemen. Then you get into Joel chapter 2, and in verses 10 and 11, you have the sun and moon going dark, which is the day of the Lord, or the sixth seal. So in Joel chapter 1, you have the first four seals. Then you get into Joel chapter 2, and at verse 10, you have the sixth seal. But in between that, you've got verses 1 through 9, which describe this army and this military. And if you're following the outline, that takes place within the fifth seal of the symbolic end times prophecy that Joel is teaching us. You got it? Any questions? Don't raise your hand. I'm not going to answer. Let me give you another piece of information that you need. And again, I'm going to give you kind of a lot of pieces of information. We're going to lay them all down for you, and we're going to tie them all together, so hopefully you can follow along. Something that you need to notice from Joel chapter 2 is that in Joel chapter 2, you have two different trumpets being blown, or two different trumpets being sounded. Now, for those of you, and especially you young guys that want to be preachers, let me just give you some advice. When you're studying a chapter of Scripture, and you've got the same phrase that comes up multiple times in the same chapter or in, in, in a section of chapters, you should pay attention to that. That's there for a reason. Oftentimes, God does that to outline some things for us. It's interesting, because in Joel chapter 2, you have two different trumpets being blown. Joel chapter 2, look at verse 1, blow ye the trumpet in Zion. Then Joel chapter 2, verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion. Nothing in the Bible is there by coincidence. None of it is coincidental, incidental, accidental. It's all there for a reason. And Joel begins chapter 2 and verse 1 by saying, Blow you the trumpet in Zion. Then he says in verse 15, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Now go with me if you went to the book of Numbers just real quickly. Numbers chapter number 10. In the New Testament you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers chapter 10. When the prophet Joel says to the children of Israel in his, in his preaching in, in Joel chapter 2, Blow the trumpet. That would resonate with the children of Israel. In fact, when he says it twice, that really resonates with them because the children of Israel had been instructed by Moses to prepare a couple of trumpets to be blown for some very specific reasons. Let me show that to you. Numbers chapter 10, look at verse 1. The Bible says this, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Numbers 10, verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Make thee two trumpets of silver, of a whole piece shalt thou make them. And notice what he says, 
that thou mayest use them for. So he says, I want you to make two trumpets, and I'm going to tell you what you should use those trumpets for, that thou mayest use them for, number one, a calling of the assembly. So God told Moses, I want you to make two trumpets, and there's two reasons why you might blow these trumpets. The first reason, he says, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly. He says one reason to blow the trumpet is to bring everybody together, to call an assembly and for the journeyings of the camp. Look at verse 3. And when they shall blow with them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to thee at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And if they blow but with one trumpet, then the princes which are heads of the thousands of Israel shall gather themselves unto thee. So notice, the first reason is for gathering. Either you gather the, all, all the people, or he says, if you just need to have a, a meeting with the leaders, you can just gather the leaders together. But the first reason you would blow the trumpet is to call an assembly, to gather everybody together. Notice the second reason you would blow the trumpet. Verse 5, when ye blow an alarm, so notice the first reason is to gather an assembly the second reason is to blow an alarm. When you blow an alarm, then the camps that lie on the east part shall go forward. Notice, they're not gathering. When they blow the alarm, is because there's danger. Danger's coming. Maybe some sort of military's coming to invade, and they're blowing the alarm to get people to move. So he says, when you blow an alarm, then the camps that lie on the east part shall go forward. Verse 6. And when you blow an alarm the second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall take their journey. They shall blow an alarm for their journeys. Notice verse 7. Verse 7 makes it clear that there's two reasons why you would blow an alarm, and these are not to be confused. Notice verse 7. But when the congregation is to be gathered together, ye shall blow, but ye shall not sound an alarm. So he says, look, you're either going to blow an alarm or blow the trumpet to gather an assembly, or you're going to blow the trumpet to sound an alarm. But these are never the same thing. One is that people may flee. The other one is that people may gather. Now, here's what's interesting. Keep your place right there in Numbers and go back to Joel. When you look at the two trumpets blown in Joel chapter 2, they're blown for these two reasons. Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion. Why are we blowing? Notice, and sound an alarm. The first reason the trumpet gets blown in Joel chapter 2 is to sound an alarm. What's the second reason it gets blown in verse 15? Look at it. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Notice, call a solemn assembly. You have two trumpets being blown in the book of Joel. And again, realizing this is symbolic, but if you understand the timeline of end times prophecy, you'll notice that Joel's symbolic timeline matches up perfectly with the literal timeline given by the Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation. You have the first trumpet that sounds. Why does it sound? Verse 1, blow your trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm. You have the second trumpet where it says, blow your trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, and call a solemn, a solemn assembly. One is to sound an alarm. The other is to call an assembly. Go to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 23. If you have your finger in numbers, just go back one book and you got the book of Leviticus. Let me give you another piece of information. And we're still in the introduction. I apologize. Uh, the introduction will be longer than the sermon. So don't, you know, don't worry. I promise to get you out of here before the Lord returns. But, but I want you to understand this. Because when it comes to end times prophecy, oftentimes people get confused because they, they see a trumpet sounding. And when people see a trumpet, especially in like the prophets and in symbolic type things, they assume the rapture because the rapture is connected to the trump of God being sound, right? You have the trumpet sounding. So they hear a trumpet and they think rapture. But here's what you need to understand. When it comes to the timeline of end times prophecy, there's more than one trumpet being blown. Now, I don't have time to, to go through this, all of this with you. So I'll just kind of explain this to you quickly. And if you are familiar with this, you should be able to track with it. If you're not, I'd encourage you to study this out later. In Leviticus 23, you have a listing of all of the feasts that the children of Israel were supposed to do in a year. I preached through this, um, you know, very clearly and thoroughly when we were studying through the book of Leviticus in Leviticus chapter 23. So if you didn't, if, if you're not familiar with this, I'd encourage you to go back and 
listen to that sermon. And, and other men have preached it, and, and you can find all sorts of information on this. But you have the, the, the feast. God outlined for the children of Israel seven different feasts that they were supposed to observe during the year. Three of the feasts is what we refer to as the spring feast. They happen in the spring. One of the feasts is what we refer to as the summer feast. that happens in the summer. And then three of the feasts are what we refer to as the fall feast. They happen in the fall. Now, here's what you need to understand about these feasts. All of these feasts are symbolic of the Lord Jesus Christ. The spring feasts are symbolic of the first advent or the first coming of Christ. The fall feasts are symbolic of the second advent or the second coming of Christ. Let me just quickly explain this to you. You can write this down if you'd like it for your notes. The first feast in the spring is the Passover. Now, everybody knows what the Passover represents, the death of Christ. I mean, it's very clearly taught. You, you read a Passover passage and you, you have a lamb being slain. It's very clear. It represents the death of Christ. The second feast you have is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This pictures the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the third feast you have is the Feast of First Fruits. This is, again, clearly taught in the New Testament. It pictures the resurrection of Christ because Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection. So you have the spring feast that cover the first advent of Christ. The Passover is the death of Christ. The Feast of Unleavened Bread represents the burial of Christ. The Feast of First Fruits represents the resurrection of Christ. Then you have the summer feast. This is known as the Feast of Weeks. It's known as the Feast of Weeks because it happens a certain number of weeks after the first fruits. This is what we know in the New Testament as the Day of Pentecost. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that the day of Pentecost was pretty much the day that the church, it was like the big day that the local church there in Jerusalem kind of launched, a big day. It wasn't when the church got established, but that's when they had 3,000 saved and baptized on that day. And what the week of feast represents, it represents the local New Testament church fulfilling the Great Commission. Which, by the way, that's why God gave us a local New Testament church, to fulfill the Great Commission. That's what the Feast of Weeks is all about. It's that summer feast, and then the fall feast represents the second advent of Christ. See, you and I, on the timeline of, of history, are living between the first and second advent of Christ. We're living in that Feast of Weeks, which started on the day of Pentecost, where the New Testament, local New Testament church, is supposed to be reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Great Commission, all of that. Then you have the fall feast. The fall feast represent the second advent or the second coming of Christ. The seventh feast, the last one, is called the Feast of Tabernacles. This represents the millennial reign. Nobody argues that, pre-trib, no-trib, whatever. Everybody agrees that the Feast of Tabernacles is the millennial reign. The second to last feast is the Day of Atonement. Again, very few people argue the fact that the Day of Atonement means anything but or represents anything but the rapture of believers because it's the day that we're completely redeemed. We're atoned for completely, body, soul, and spirit. So you have the Feast of Tabernacles, the seventh feast, the sixth feast, which is the Day of Atonement, but then you have a feast right before that, the fifth feast, the first feast in the fall season, which is known as the Feast of Trumpets. Now, oftentimes people say, well, the Feast of Trumpets, you know, that must be the rapture, right? Because doesn't the rapture happen at the trumpet? The only problem with that is that the Day of Atonement pictures the, the, the rapture. Now, let me just show you something about this Feast of Trumpets. Leviticus 23, are you there? Look at verse 27. In Leviticus 23, 27, you have the Day of Atonement, which pictures or represents or symbolizes or foreshadows, whatever word you want to use, they all mean the same thing, the rapture. Leviticus 23, 27, also on the 10th day of the 7th month. I want you to notice when the Day of Atonement happens. It happens on the 10th day of the 7th month. There shall be a Day of Atonement, and it shall be an holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Now, I want you to notice, in contrast, when the, the Feast of Trumpets happens. When does the Day of Atonement happen? It happens on the 10th day of the 7th month. 
When does the day of the Feast of Trumpets happen? Look at verse 24, same chapter. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, notice, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath of memorial, of blowing of trumpets, and holy convocation. When does the Feast of Trumpets happen? It happens ten days before the Day of Atonement. So you have the Feast of Trumpets, the trumpets are blown, on the first day of the seventh month, ten days later, you have the Day of Atonement that represents the rapture. You say, what is this? What is the trumpet sound sounding here? What does that represent? What do these ten days represent? Well, go to Revelation chapter 2 and look at verse 10. Revelation 2.10. Figuratively or symbolically, it's not literally ten days, but these ten days represent the time of tribulation. Revelation chapter 2, look at verse 10. I'll just give you one. We could look at a lot of passages to prove this. I'll just give you one. Revelation 2, look at verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation. Notice these words. Ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Now, we know that the tribulation period, the great tribulation period, is actually going to last 75 days. But it's 10 days because it's condensed to a one year, where the, tri the, the Daniel 70th week is actually a week of years, and it's multiple years, and there's a leap year in there, so there's a, a different amount. But I want you to notice that these 10 days are figurative of the tribulation. So when you look at the full harvest feasts, that represent the second coming of Christ, the first thing that happens is the sounding of an alarm. And then for 10 days, that pictures the tribulation period. People say, the preacher would say, oh no, the trumpet sounds, uh, that's always uh, uh, the, the, the rapture. But they don't understand that. There's two reasons you would blow an alarm. One is to gather, but one is to sound an alarm. It's to warn people to flee, to run. The trumpet feast is actually picturing the abomination of desolation. Ten days later, you have the atonement, the rapture, and then you have the Feast of Tabernacle, which is the millennial reign. Go back to, actually go to Daniel, Daniel chapter number 11. I know I've given you a lot of information, hopefully you're tracking with it or it's making sense to you. Daniel chapter 11, if you're there in the book of Joel, you go back, you have the book of Hosea and Daniel. The lack of amens makes me nervous that you don't know what I'm talking about, but whatever. I'll just pretend you're smarter than you look. Daniel chapter 11. All these things, you, you need to kind of understand all these things. We're going to connect them all together here for you in a minute. When the fifth seal is opened, the abomination of desolation is set up and the, the time of great tribulation begins. This is mentioned in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and it's often referred to as the abomination of desolation in the Old Testament. Excuse me, in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's referred to just a little different. It's pretty much the same thing but it's worded a little different. I want you to notice it. Daniel eleven thirty one. 31. An arm shall stand on his part and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, Daniel 11.31, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, this is in the midst of the week, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. Now in Matthew 24, is, we're told, it's called the abomination of desolation. Here Daniel says, it's the abomination that maketh desolate. Now in Matthew 24, Jesus said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Daniel. You know, he's saying, this is what Daniel's talked about. The abomination of desolation. Daniel said, hey, it's an abomination that maketh desolate. Look at Daniel chapter 12 and verse number 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, again in the midst of the week, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So Daniel says, Yes, it's the abomination of desolation. Why is it called that? It's called that because it is the abomination that maketh desolate. Now, we have to ask the question, what is the abomination making desolate? Go to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Now, here's the thing. When you and I study end times prophecy, 
And we go to the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. We go to the, the book of Revelation. When we get to the fifth seal, we, we like to focus on the abomination of desolation. And when we focus on the abomination of desolation, we focus on the mark of the beast, the fact that if you don't take the mark of the beast, you will not be able to buy and sell, the fact that people will be beheaded when they don't take the mark of the beast. We focus on that because that's what pertains primarily to us, and it's probably, I would say, the most important thing that you should focus on. That's what you need to know. The fifth seal, the abomination of desolation set up, and then there's a mark of the beast, and there's a united persecution of Christians. That's what happens. But here's what you need to understand. That's not the only thing that happens when the fifth seal is open, when the abomination of desolation happens. That's what we care the most about because that pertains to us the most, but that's not the only thing that happens. See, when you read Matthew 24 and Mark, thir- uh, uh, Mark 13, they, the way that they're worded is very similar and they're pretty consistent in their description. But in Luke 21, we have the Olivet Discourse and Luke gives it to us in a little bit of a different light. Not wrong, just something else. He focuses in on something else. There's something else that happens when the fifth seal is open and the abomination that maketh desolate is set up. You and I focus on the fact that the mark of the beast is rolled out. You can't buy and sell without it. And we get persecuted. Christians get persecuted as a result. But what else happens during the abomination of desolation? Luke 21, look at verse 20. And when ye shall see Jerusalem, notice these words, compassed with armies. What does the word compassed mean? It means surrounded with armies. Then know that the, notice the word, desolation thereof is nigh. The words thereof mean uh, it is a reference to the thing just mentioned. What is the thing just mentioned? What is the, the, the desolation of what? The desolation of thereof is nigh. What is thereof referring to? It's referring to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, he says, when ye see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. This is when the trumpet is sounded, the alarm. Why do you sound an alarm that people may flee? Look at verse 21. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. Then let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and them that get stuck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. See, when the fifth seal is open and the abomination of desolation is set up, yes, the Antichrist declares himself God. The false prophet declares him God. The mark of the beast is rolled out. Those who don't take the mark of the beast cannot buy or sell without it. They're beheaded. All of that happens in the fifth seal. But there's also something else that happens. Jerusalem is made desolate. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed. You say, by who? By the Antichrist. Now you say, well, I don't understand. I thought the Jews and the Antichrist were best friends. They were. Till he declared himself God. See, here's what you need to understand about the Jews and the Jews' religion. And even today, if you talk to Jews, they'll, they'll tell you, they don't acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They believe that their Messiah is still coming. But when you ask them about their Messiah, they see their Messiah as a political leader. They see their Messiah as a sort of King David who's going to come and take power and bring them back to the glory of of when David was king, of when Solomon was king. They're looking for a political leader. So when the Antichrist shows up in the first four seals and he's going forth conquering and to conquer, he's uniting the world in a one world government. He's putting his headquarters in Jerusalem and he's he's a political leader. They're all for it. Let me tell you something. The Jews, the the synagogue of Satan, they're all for war and, and the, you know, the, the, the military industrial complex they're for all of that right. they love that but you know what they're not into? worshipping deity worshipping God yeah. so when the antichrist then crosses the line at the fifth seal sets up the abomination of desolation and declares himself God they're like we don't, got, we don't want none of that we don't want to worship you as God we just want a political leader that's going to make us rich so the Antichrist actually turns on them and destroys and makes Jerusalem desolate. Now you say, well, why does God allow these things? Why? Well, notice verse 22, Luke 21, 22. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. 
But woe unto them that are with child, and them that get stuck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, in the land, and wrath upon those people. See, you say, why does God ha- allow the the Antichrist to destroy? Why is this put into the timeline of the history? Here's why: because you reap what you sow. And look, if you study the Old Testament, you'll find consistently that God often uses wicked people to punish other wicked people. So why is the Antichrist making Jerusalem desolate? Because the Jews' religion is wicked. That's why. Because they've led all sorts of wars and military vaccines and killed so many people. God says, hey, you're not going to get out of this before you get destroyed too. And, and before he destroys the Antichrist, he uses the Antichrist to make them desolate. Now, here's something that the pre-tribbers don't understand. Look at the last part of verse 23. Great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. They'll say, well, this can't be, this can't be a time that we're living in because this is the wrath of God. But is that what it says, that this is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is upon the whole world. This says, and, and great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. What people? The Jews. This is just one nation, one city being destroyed, being made desolate. By the way, I hate to break it to you preppers, this is why the whole prepping thing doesn't really apply to you, unless you're living in in Jerusalem. Those are the people that are told, hey, when you see the abomination of desolation, get out of town. Say, why? Because God's going to allow the Antichrist to destroy Jerusalem. It's it's not you're living in Sacramento, California, and you better go to Idaho or something. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that when the abomination of desolation is set up, the Antichrist, yes, is going to set up the abomination of desolation, set up the mark of the beast, he's going to buy and sell, all that's going to happen, but he's also going to turn around at the same time and he's going to destroy Jerusalem. When does this happen? The fifth seal. Remember the first four seals of the four horsemen. The Antichrist shows them the scene, begins to rise politically, but nobody really knows who he is. Then we have the famines, the pestilence, the war. The fifth seal is open. The abomination of desolation is set up, declares himself God, and then he makes Jerusalem desolate. That's why it's called the abomination of desolation, because it maketh Jerusalem desolate. It happens in the fifth seal. Go back to Joel, chapter number two. Joel, chapter number one, covers what? The first four seals, the four horsemen, the pestilence, the war, the famines. Then you get to verse 10 of Joel chapter 2, and we have the sixth seal, the sun and moon are darkened, the day of the Lord. But between that, in verses 1 through 9, you have this battle. What's being described here? I'll tell you what's being described here. The desolation of Jerusalem. This is the army of the Antichrist destroying Jerusalem. And by the way, Joel is preaching to Jerusalem, and he's telling them, hey, in the end times, this city is going to get destroyed. This is not the battle of Armageddon. Notice what's being described here. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion. This is the the feast of trumpets. Ten days before the rapture. Figuratively, symbolically. It's sound and alarm. He says, blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound and alarm. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Notice verse 2. He says, a great people and a strong that have not ever been the like, neither shall any more after it. Notice verse 3. And nothing shall escape them. Notice verse 5. They shall leap as a strong people set in battle array. Look at verse 6. Before their faces the people shall be much painted. Look at verse 7. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. And they shall not break their ranks. Look at verse 9. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the walls. They shall climb upon the houses. And they shall enter in at the windows like a thief. This is a reference to the Antichrist army making Jerusalem desolate at the, fifth, uh, at the fifth seal. It goes perfectly with the timeline Joel gives us. It goes perfectly with the timeline Christ gives us. It goes perfectly with the timeline Revelation gives us. Why? Because it's the word of God. Amen. So people say, look at the army in Revelation 2. That disproves the pre-trip rapture. No, it doesn't. It actually proves it pretty, pretty great. Because what's being described, right where you would think you would see the fifth seal, they say, well, shouldn't that be the abomination of desolation? Look, there's an army here. There's no abomination of desolation. And it's like, no, that's actually exactly what the Bible says, because the abomination that maketh desolate is destroying Jerusalem, and that's what he's describing. He's describing the abomination that maketh desolate, the desolation of Jerusalem. Now, let's continue on with the timeline. 
Joel chapter 1, you have the first four seals. Joel chapter 2, in verses 1 through 9, you have the fifth seal, the abomination of desolation, and Jerusalem being destroyed, being made desolate. Then you have the sixth seal. What's the sixth seal? If you look at uh, the book of Revelation, it's the sun and moon being darkened. Look, per, it goes perfectly. Joel chapter 2, verse 10. The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord shall utter his voice before his army. Notice, the army being described was not the Lord's army. This is now a different army, and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. For his camp is very great. For he is strong that executed this word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Now, when you look at verses 12, 13, and 14, I don't believe that there's any prophetic uh, application here. I believe that this is actually just Joel speaking to the people of his time, and we'll come back to this in a different sermon. But he says, therefore also now, saith the Lord, because he just got done explaining to them about the wrath of God and that God's going to destroy Jerusalem. He says, therefore also now, saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto God, uh, the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him not of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent, and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering, and a drink offering, unto the Lord your God. I don't believe there's any sort of end times prophecy symbolism there. He's just preaching to the people. But then, in verse 15, he goes to the second trumpet. Because remember, there's two trumpets in Joel chapter 2. The first one is to sound an alarm. Why? Because Jerusalem is being made desolate, the fifth seal. Then he says, the sun and moon go dark. That's the sixth seal. Then he says, there's a second trumpet. Notice verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. What is this trumpet for? Sanctify fast. There's one purpose for the second trumpet. To gather. Call a solemn assembly. Do you see it? Verse 15. Call a solemn assembly. What's an assembly? An assembling of people. Look at verse 16. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. What's a congregation? It's an assembly of believers. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. What does the second trumpet represent? It represents the, it represents the gathering of God's people. What is this? I'll give you one guess. It's the rapture. First Thessalonians chapter four. Let me show it to you. Go to First Thessalonians. Go to First uh, uh, First Thessalonians chapter four. You got the T books. They're all clustered together. First Second Thessalonians. First Second Timothy. Titus. First Thessalonians chapter four. Look, doesn't this follow exactly? You have the desolation of Jerusalem, the fifth seal. The sun and moon darkened, the sixth seal. The first part of the sixth seal. Then the second part of the sixth seal is the gathering of the elect. He says, "Blow a trumpet, gather everybody together." This is what the rapture is. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. That's the second trumpet that's being sounded there. The first one was for the alarm. The second one was for the gathering. Notice, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. We're gathered. We're assembled. Hebrews calls it the, 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 the church in heaven, the church of the firstborn, he says, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall they ever be with the Lord. Listen to me. Joel chapter 2 proves again, like every passage of Scripture, that the rapture happens after the sun and moon are darkened, after the day of the Lord. He says, look, you sound a trumpet. That's not the, that's not the, the, the rapture. That's an alarm. He says, sound a trumpet for an alarm. Why? Because the abomination that make it desolate is going to destroy Jerusalem. But after that, you got the sixth seal, the sun and the moon are darkened. And then Joel says, then we hear another trumpet to gather God's people. Why? That's the rapture. Amen. When does it happen? After the sun and moon are darkened. When does it happen? After the tribulation. And look, it continues perfectly. Look at verse 16 again, last part of verse 16. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Now, those of you who like to study end times prophecy, you know that that terminology should kind of trigger something for you. Why? Because it's a reference to the bridegroom going forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. What is that a reference to? Go to Revelation 19. It is a reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bridegroom and the bride. This is connected to Armageddon. Notice again, Joel is in perfect, he's in perfect chronological symbolic order 
with what we know is revealed for us clearly in the New Testament. And by the way, that's how you ought to study the Bible. You don't go to Joel and try to figure out, you know, how can Joel teach me Revelation? The book of Revelation, it's called Revelation for a reason. It's there to reveal to you what God has in store. You start with the New Testament and let that reveal to you the cryptic, dark writings of the Old Testament. I'll save you a lot of problems trying to figure out all sorts of weird doctrines from all these, you know, obscure books of the Bible when the Bible is very clear in the New Testament. In Joel 2.16, he says that the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Revelation 19.7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. What happens after the marriage supper of the Lamb? The battle of Armageddon. They're the same thing. They're connected. What happens after that? The millennial reign. Look at Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. What's the next step after the marriage supper of the Lamb? You have the millennial reign. When you go to the book of Joel, what do we have in verse 16? You have the bridegroom coming out of his uh, chamber and the bride coming out of her closet. You have the marriage supper of the Lamb. What do you have after that? You have a description of the millennial reign. Look at it. Joel chapter 2, verse 18. Notice what he says. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith. And I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen, but I will remove far off from you the northern army. And I believe this is a reference to the battle of Armageddon. And will drive him into a land barren and desolate, with his face toward the east sea and his hinder parts toward the utmost sea. And his stink shall come up, and his ill savor shall, uh, shall come up, because he hath done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Notice he's talking about the fact that God is going to bless them, that the land is going to be fruitful. Verse 23, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. I don't have time to develop that, but when you see those terms, former rain and latter rain. It's usually a reference to end times prophecy, verse 24. And the floor shall be uh, floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with fine oil, and I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. He's talking about the supernatural restoring the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm and my great army which I sent among you, and ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, that he hath dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know, notice these words, that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. I want you to notice that in the book of Joel, you have this symbolic outline that follows perfectly. You have Joel chapter 1 that shows you the first four seals, or the first four, the four horsemen, the first part of the tribulation period. Then you have Joel chapter 2, verse 10 and 11 that show you the sixth seal, the sun and moon being darkened. And right after that, you have a trumpet being blown, which is the gathering of people. But between that, you have this army in, in Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 being described. And people will say, well, this makes everything not make sense because this is the battle of Armageddon. The only problem with that is that it's not the battle of Armageddon. Well, what is this army being described here during the time of the fifth seal? Well, if you read your Bible and quit reading Darby and quit reading MacArthur and quit reading commentaries and you actually open up the King James Bible, you would find out that the fifth seal is open, the abomination that make it desolate is set up, and yes, the Antichrist is, uh, 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 declares himself God, and yes, the mark of the beast is rolled out, and yes, people must worship the beast in his image, and yes, you cannot buy and sell. Yes, all those things happen, but there's something else that happens. He makes Jerusalem desolate. And Joel, speaking to Jerusalem, says, hey, you know the city's going to play a part in end times prophecy. Oh, really? What's the part? It's going to get destroyed. Because you're wicked. 
the Bible, here's the application, we'll finish up. The Bible is incredibly consistent. You can trust it. And look, whenever you look at the Bible and you're like, this doesn't seem to make sense, this doesn't, it seems to contradict clear scriptures. Whenever you look at anything in the Bible and you're like, this cryptic, obscure passage seems to contradict the clear teaching of the New Testament, just realize something. The Bible's not wrong, you're wrong. And you probably are just missing something and you need to ask God to help you figure it out. If you would have asked the prophet Joel, hey Joel, are you pre-trib? Mid-trib? Post-trib? What's your position? He might have said, I don't know what you're talking about, but I know this. First, there's a trumpet that sounds an alarm. Then Jerusalem is made desolate. Then the sun and the moon go black. Joel would say, that's the day of the Lord. Then there's a second trumpet, and God gathers his people. So I guess that makes me post-trib, pre-wrath. Because that's what the Bible teaches consistently throughout the Bible. God is consistent. And sometimes people look at the Bible and say, there's a contradiction here. No, you're the contradiction. The word of God is clear. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this great chapter. And I know there's been a lot of confusion and, and people have, have wondered about, you know, what these things are. But if, if you were to simply just look at the New Testament, look at the outline of the New Testament, I think it's clear what we're seeing here. You have the first four seals. You have the sixth seal. And between that and the fifth seal, you have an army being described. It's not the battle of Armageddon. It's not the battle of Gog and Magog. It's Jerusalem being desolate, which happens in the fifth seal. Lord, I pray you'd help us to understand that. Help us to, to, to be students of the Bible. Lord, help us to read the Bible, love the Bible, study the Bible. Help us, Lord, to realize that there's so much in the Bible that's already been revealed to us. We don't have to go and try to figure out some new fancy doctrine that no one's ever heard of. We can just study this book you've given us and help us to understand it in a mightier and better way. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whenever the Matt come up and